0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Clay, we your host and we'll be today co-host Christian Wentz. Hey Christian. Hi.
1: Hi everyone. Hi Sean. Oh,
0: hey. Nice to see you again. to be back. Where have you been?
1: Uh, I was I was on the tarmac uh, uh, for the recording of, la- of last show. And I was so looking forward to talk old uh, buddy Jimmy, but uh, yeah. But uh, I didn't leave the house today, so uh, all good.
0: <laughs> Where were you flying to or from?
1: Um... I I was flying back to Munich um, and yeah and landed but yeah then then all hell broke, broke <laughs> loose because they didn't find uh, I think the the stairs to to let us disembark uh, the plane so yeah um, anyway um, I'm here I um, will meet our missing uh, co-host uh, Adam Formanek uh, next week in person actually uh, so I'll make sure that he'll not miss uh, a show again
0: ah oh, good give him hell for me.
1: <laughs> I will I will all right,
0: all right, let's welcome our guest this week, uh Chris Martinez, hey Chris,
2: hey, how's it going? good, thanks for having me,
0: uh, yeah, not a problem, not a problem, so we typically like to get started with our first time guests, you know, have them tell us a little bit about themselves, how they got into development, how they got into dot net so uh, so why don't you start us there?
2: oh, wow, that's the wayback machine um <laughs> I'm ready eighty eight miles per hour. Um, I, yeah, let's see, my first introduction to .NET, I was just getting into engineering circa 99, 2000, learning, I think, VB6 at the time. And uh, a friend of mine who was in the industry was like, forget everything you know about it, just go learn this thing, VB.NET, and, uh, and that's going to be the future. Uh, that started me on my path to .NET, and, you know, it's really funny. The thing that really put me over into the C-sharp realm was, uh, the missing feature in VB, for people who don't remember, VB.net did not have a co- the concept of XML comments uh, when it first released. And that was like my bread and butter. I was like always going to the object browser and I'm going to share stuff with people and I got to see what the, what, it, what this thing actually does and in IntelliSense and all that. Uh, and it just didn't have it. So I started doing libraries in C Sharp just for that feature. And then eventually I just became, came to prefer the syntax and and the, the other little nuances that were just a lot harder to do in, in VB. Uh, it's pretty rare I do VB anymore, but that was probably my my, my intro in, into C sharp. That was probably, gosh, two thousand one, two thousand two, right when right when things were coming out. And I've pretty much been doing
0: it ever since. Uh, <laughs> it's a very similar story. Yep.
1: Yeah, not yeah. Well, we, we, but... We've all been there, right? <laughs> but yeah. look, looking back is is not always a good uh, good idea,
0: right? Um, so you're one of those rare unicorns that actually comments your code. <laughs> well, the on the outside, when you do libraries,
2: on the inside, you know, hey, the, you should write code that's self-describing, and you should only put a comment when the code can't actually describe it. Like yeah. the people that put like, you know, comments that are like, write a method called foo and put a comment that says, does the foo, you know, just, <laughs> that just irks me.
0: Yeah. Or like, never do it this way, but I'm doing it right now. So.
2: You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> this should never happen. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So what uh, what kind of uh projects do you typically work on? Oh, uh
2: yeah, I almost think like, you know, we're we're this dying breed. Uh, I would say I'm still like the jack of all trades. I've touched everything, everything from Active Directory, Exchange, Web Development, Windows development, UIs, you name it all. Uh and you know, I think now we're we're entering this phase of, of software engineering where you're starting to have very disciplined uh and very more, a little bit more siloed roles. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We consider other sciences like medicine or law, right? You, now you're an expert in AI, you're an expert in web development, you're an expert in, you know, UI development. You just can't know it all anymore. I mean, gosh, I feel like there's a new web development framework every other week. <laughs> How do you keep up with that? Um, so yeah, today, you know, I've probably been doing services pretty much as my focus point for probably the last, 0, 15 plus years. So uh i've really like ramped up and done everything you've everything and under the sun when it comes to services whistles and soaps and wcf and rest all that and i've really made it in recent more recent years i really made it a point to just know and be an expert in everything that there is to be rust I, i'm sorry not rust but to be rest <laughs> um <laughs> i do some rust too but uh yeah to be everything that's 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 around uh around rest and i it's it's actually fascinating to me to watch like what happens in the industry and how that's really become like this other buzzword, you know, especially when young people come. Oh, I've been building a REST API. Okay, well, what does it mean to be RESTful? And it's usually crickets. I'm like, have you actually ever read Fielding's paper? Like, how how can you say you're doing something if you can't actually define it?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's kind of funny. That's actually one of my uh, my interview questions for you know junior level developers that are that are coming in. You know, please explain. You well. Know, what RESTful development and APIs, you know, what means and explain all the different verbs and whatever. And still a lot of people just, uh, what? What do you mean? It's like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also surprising
2: that there's somehow there's this false equivalency that REST equals HTTP. It, It does not, right? You can be RESTful not doing HTTP. That's not what the constraints actually say. Now it's true that's what Fielding actually did, right? He he built a constraint system so that he could evolve HTTP, and that's obviously the most prolific application of it. But it's by far not not limited to that. I mean, I think probably the the, the most ubiquitous other example might have been WS Transfer. If anybody remembers that old that old SOAP you know protocol, that was though basically had like four operations, which was you know get patch. Put in post. <laughs> um, now that, that doesn't probably make sense if you're doing it over HTTP. But if you're doing a non-HTTP uh, as the transport medium, like you just wanted to do raw TCP, okay, you, you could argue maybe you're doing REST over just raw TCP.
0: So how does that work? You're not using the same verbs, and it's, so you do. But so right, so
2: HTTP has the methods that you actually use, and and that in and of itself doesn't need to be part of the API. So in WS transfer, right, you had them they're SOAP operations, right? Basically your RPC style. So you'd have a method called get, and this would be the, this would be the equivalent that the get in WS transfer, let's say would be the equivalent of the HTTP get, um, method, except that, you know, you're not going over HTTP, right? So if it's pure RPC, pure TCP, or maybe even some other protocol, you're effectively doing the same type of get, but it's just not using HTTP.
0: Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, um, Sounds like you've done a lot of work with with apis you know, uh, that's kind of our subject for today is I, it's going to be about apis most definitely most definitely so the one of the tricky things about uh, APIs a lot of people run into is they they'll write an API, everything's working whatever, but then they've got to make some changes that may or may not be breaking and they so they get a great another version of it you know, and lots of different approaches for that. Um, there's a lot of gotchas with different, different approaches, things like that. So what have you learned through the years for versioning APIs? uh, a whole bunch, especially when it
2: comes to, when it comes to, uh, to Rust and doing HTTP, I think probably the first, the first, uh, one of the first things is the fallacy of backwards compatibility. Um, people tend to treat an API version. And when I say API version in the context of HTTP, like it's a binary version and it is not it's something completely different. I mean, I think that's why, you know, if you if were to ask Fielding himself, he would say that the only type of versioning you could do would be by media type negotiation. Why? Because it's, you, you're not asking for a different resources, you're asking for a different representation of that resource. And that's actually, you know, the version itself. And so I've, I've heard lots of questions about, well, can I do like semantic versioning? No, that, that doesn't work. That's not how binary stuff works. Um, you know, there's the other one I think is like, you know, well, well, it's backwards compatible, you are a service, you cannot guarantee that every client in the universe that calls you, does something like have a tolerant reader. Now, uh, so a tolerant reader is something that, you know, knows how to read the response and if it doesn't understand it, it just happily ignores it, uh, being ergo tolerant. And we see m- most of modern, you know, serialization libraries like, you know, for JSON and XML and all these other different types of formats. They tend to intrinsically be, uh, you know, tolerant readers, but you can't guarantee that, you know, there could be a client that reads it and goes, oh, well, if I see extra stuff in here, I fail, right? Because it's something I don't expect. I have seen stuff like that happen before. And so you can't just guarantee that you're not going to break somebody. So even if you add, you know, people think, oh, if I just add stuff, it's just going to be totally fine. That's not necessarily true. And there's not really a way for you to verify, you know, verify that. You know, if Facebook adds like another attribute to their API. There's no way they can go, well, let's just test all the clients and see, make sure that nobody broke. It, it just doesn't work that way. So the only safe way you can ever advance any kind of change is to have a new version. I mean, it's just whether it be behavioral or something you send over the wire.
1: But of course, it means uh, you have to maintain uh, uh, old versions. Uh, well. To, to some extent, right I mean
2: absolutely I think uh, you know this is probably you know for, for 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 service teams out there that are that are designing APIs, I think that's probably in, at least in my work experience, one of the things that I've noticed is that teams do not have a sound versioning policy, and by policy, I mean that you know we're only going to support n minus two right it's just completely nonsensical that you're gonna support you know all the versions forever. You know, and then what is that policy? When are you going to, you know, it, when you say you're going to deprecate something, is it going to be alive for the next six months, the next year? Like, when is it going to be gone? And how do you advertise that? Uh, how do you advertise that to clients that's actually going to happen? Um, and I think once you do that, then you get into this, you get into the slot where like, you know, suddenly where you thought, oh, gosh, how am I going to support like 10 different versions to like, oh, I only ever have to actually do three you know, it's it's maintainable, and you actually, especially if you do that up front, you have a reasonable expectation with your clients. Like, hey, I told you this thing's going to go away in like twelve months. So, when, it, when I finally pull the rug out from under you, there shouldn't be anybody there anymore.
1: I mean, quite quite often, at least that's that's what I'm seeing uh, when when working with with uh, corporations uh, and companies is that at least more often than not, you don't think about versioning when you do the V1. You start thinking about versioning when you see it's uh, you, you can't avoid having a v2 or a v1.1, which is a different discussion, right? And then things start, right? And then maybe you have you know two versions you maintain, and then you still kind of don't care, and you can maintain both at the same time, right? But then when you have a lot of changes, or I had this recently in a project that that some some legal regulations change, which required an API, a different API behavior. Let's put it that way. Then all hell breaks loose, right? And some, it's I, I see it so often that that uh, at least at the beginning they say, well, we have an API, and uh, I don't know, maybe we are, we are the only consumers of that API. These are those, you know, famous famous last words, right? Uh, yeah, and that will never change. Or us being the only consumers means means there's one client and we control. That client, right? And as long as these these preconditions are correct. That's a sound approach. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <will> I, <laughs> I de-
2: I've definitely seen that before. Yeah, you know, I, I've struggled to come up with exactly what the right yeah. terminology is that, for that. But I always say that, you know, even if you didn't start with versioning, you always had an initial version, whatever you call it, even if you maybe you didn't call it anything like the, the initial launch. It, maybe we called it V1, but we don't have an actual V1 semantic. It's just that was the initial thing with the default that we launched. So that always exists, even even if you don't formally have it. It's always there.
1: So, I mean, um, what, what what do you recommend? I know every project is different, right? And there are so many factors swaying in, right? But uh, when should you start thinking about API versioning? Is it like upfront? Is it like after 1.0? No matter whether you call it like this or not. Is it... I mean, you can say it depends and it's the correct answer, but... Uh, I mean are there some I, no, kind I, I, of rules you have encountered.
2: So I I always think you're you're so it's you know, we never wanna we never wanna over engineer, we never wanna, you know, analysis by paralysis and all that type of stuff. So I think again, going back to I think that the thing that you have to really do first is is define policy. You can define policy and that sets you up for the future without necessarily doing a whole bunch of work. Right. Like we just know like we don't know like it's pretty safe to say that like we don't know if we're going to have a V2 or V3. There probably will be some iteration. And so it's in our best interest to actually say what the policy for that's going to be when it happens. And that might not happen for six months or three years or possibly never, right? It's just, you just have a a, a, a defined policy. And then exactly like, what's that strategy going to be when that time comes?
1: I think that's great advice. Um yeah, I know that a lot of lots of people say oh not lots of people some people say, yeah, you know, oh policy and get another document no one reads. But still, then you know, it's in writing and everyone agrees on it. And then once the time comes well, everyone hypothetically agrees on it. But then when the time comes, right, you can say, Okay, look, that's that's what we decided. That's yeah, I
2: mean I sort of related to that is, you know, we say a lot of like you know v1 v2. Um, a, a lot of more mature APIs have actually moved. You know Azure, for example, has moved to using dates rather than version numbers. There's a couple of interesting things about that. One is you always know exactly when it when it released. So you know you can't. Who knows when v1 was released? But when you see that it's like you know the the 2018 API, like maybe that's maybe it's a bit old.
1: <laughs> so so what's what's your preferred? Versioning mechanism then, so do we go with dates or I don't know the commit uh, commit IDs or major minor I think, I think, patch. I
0: think doing a prefix with like a slash v one v two seems to be the most common to me, but that doesn't mean it's the best.
2: Yeah, so numbers are are certainly still out there, very common. Um, it's it, one of the things I, I have encountered. It's sort of amusing, is. Is then people trying to map that into like their binary implementation, or trying to f- figure out like you know this thing, and then still coordinating it to a date. So I would say you know if I'm if I'm building an API for the public, I mean actually probably almost just general. If I'm if I'm doing anything outside of an example, I would probably use a date. And I, the the biggest reason like a date is that clearly exposes when this thing was actually released. Like when was this version? Um as opposed to a, a number. I mean, numbers are simple, but there's just, you can't infer or know, like, when did that thing actually become available? The I think that's another thing that's misunderstood is, like, divorcing those two ideas, right? Like, what you see over the wire doesn't have a direct correlation with what's behind the scenes. Like, the infrastructure and improvements could have changed 10 times behind the scenes, but the actual wire protocol just didn't change. It didn't break. Um, I mean... There's tons of other examples of this in the wild. I mean, think about like FTP or SMTP or things like like these, the protocols haven't changed. I guarantee you the implementations of those things have changed, you know, improved over the years, uh, you know, even for the same versions. Like, you know, we, we came up with more optimized things. And so, yeah, just because you have an old, let's say, date of the wire protocol doesn't necessarily mean you're actually talking to a, an old service implementation
1: i think another let's say technical aspect uh, uh, is uh, where do you put the version number i mean there are several <laughs> options right uh path query string uh, uh accept header um extra non-standardized header um do you have like a uh, Uh, A preference which is always the (laughs) first one you recommend right or is it again you know so
2: no oh uh so i have
1: (laughs) i was hoping i have
2: i have refined my opinion over the years uh i used to be a little bit more pragmatic about it although i've probably become more dogmatic about it um simply because simply uh again becoming more versed in what rest means and and uh, trying to align that. It, it, you know, if you're not going to build, if you're not actually building a RESTful API, but you're doing HTTP, that's fine. They're just two different things. As long as we don't conflate those two ideas, it's fine. So uh, I generally would probably go with the query string. That is probably not the absolute true RESTful way, but it, but it tends to be the most pragmatic in terms of implementation, um, simply because, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff with like web apps and you just put it in a query string. If you're, you know, if you're running like, let's say, the fetch API and some JavaScript in a web page, it's kind of a pain if you have to go put it in a header or you have to go put it like in, in a, you know, even if it's accept or some custom header.
1: Yeah, um, you know I mean, you you might have authentication as well, right. Um, where you would also need to set a header. So I, is that really something that turns uh, clients off? Uh... I mean,
2: I, I don't think so. I just you know. Okay, it, no, it's, a, pure, it's, it's, just, it's pure It's pure it's pure laziness. It's convenience. I mean yeah, well, yeah. I, I'd say one example where that's I, I'd say it, one practical way where it's very useful if you're building and testing is you could just put it right in the put it right in the browser and, and see what the test yeah, results. Yeah, yeah. Are. Okay,
1: okay, Stand it's
2: like super easy. Um so I don't really have a problem with you know, there's not really a need to do a custom header. Uh, simply because you already have like acceptor content yeah, type, that's yeah, yeah. probably where it should really go. Um, there are a few limitations to that, but um, yeah, I mean, certainly content doing it by content type negotiation is the true restful way, the best way. And there actually are a few APIs in the wild that do that. Uh, the GitHub API is is a very popular example like I could say that, that does it that way. Uh, so now to the most controversial part: putting it in the path is just flat out wrong. It's just not. That is, it is not restful. Uh, and, and I've really been trying to steer people uh, away from that. I, I'm i due for some, some blog posts that really kind of outline this. So there's, a, there's several problems with that. First and foremost, like the, the reason it's not restful is you actually break the uniform interface constraint, right? The uniform, part of the uniform interface is saying that the URL, right? Specifically the path is a resource identifier. So let's say if I ask for order one, two, three, right? And then I stick, a V1 in front of that or a V2 in front of that, by the semantics of REST, by the uniform interface, those have two different IDs. Yeah, they, but it's the same resource. Yeah, but, yeah.
1: So I, I But it's the, the same the resource, issue. so it's, yeah, it's yeah. actually
2: false. Yeah. So there's just two problems with that. One, people think that the ID is actually one, two, three, which is wrong. It's actually the whole path. And then the the fact that you have two paths actually imply that you have two different resources when in fact you actually don't. What you have is two different representations of the same resource. Uh, now, the counter-argument to that, because I'll, I'll counter my own argument, is you are allowed to have multiple identifiers to the same resource, but that's not really what this means. Generally, it's like, oh, you could go find this some other place or something like that. Um, so uh, yeah, I've, that is just the edge of it. Um, if you're really trying to build a service taxonomy that is restful and you have versioning where things really fall down in in the path are things like if you want to do um, if you want to do hypertext right if you want to have hypermedia to give links. So let's say that uh, you have order one two three and then it has a link to customer uh, four five six and these are independent services that evolve separately. So if you ask for for V one orders one two three and there is a V one and a V two of customer four or five, six, how do you know which version the client wants? You you don't like, there's the only way you can do that is either have to, there's, there's several possible approaches. One, you just flat out assume this is what the client wants, which would be wrong because maybe they're not. Uh, two, um, there's other, some other kind of coupling where you just like advance it to like the most, most recent one, but then you don't know that the client can actually handle that. Right. Or uh, three, which some people do, but it requires a lot of discipline to headache, if you ask me, is what I would call symmetrical versioning. So if you have an entire API set and you say, well, every single one always has the same version, then in those ways it can work. But in general, like a client should always ask for the version it wants. You should never even advertise it because it, it can't be, you can't know what the client actually wants. It's the client's responsibility to ask for it. In the same way you would ask for media type, right? You, you don't tell the client, hey, go here and ask for JSON. You just say, go here. And the client says, hey, I'd, I'd like this in JSON. If the server supports a client, might ask for an XML. You you, know, you you don't know why they might need to ask that. And you can't tell them what they need to ask for.
1: But I mean, uh, I, sorry, I have to quickly go back to to uh, pending the the version in in the query string. But what do you do when you do hate to us then? Ah, so you just,
2: you just don't put it in there at all, right? But again, okay. the query okay. string okay. is not part of the identifier. Okay, right? yeah. The query okay. string That's is, is literally yeah. just that. It's part of the, it's query semantics and the identifier of the resource doesn't change. Now you could potentially, you know, put it in the query string as a suggestion, but the client can easily not honor that. As opposed, you know, they could just drop off the query thing and say, hey, I'm going to request it with this. As opposed to if it's in the path, now you're talking about you have to break it apart, you have to understand, like, where in the path the version exists, and then like, m- m- meld it back together. Yeah, it, it just turns into a real mess. Yeah,
1: yeah. okay. No, that, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, even, even once you have, hey, to us, things will not automatically get better, right? Because I've seen several applications where just, you know, take what they get back uh, from the call, and then just take those URLs verbatim, right? But then ignore sending headers or appending to the query string, right? But I I, I absolutely uh, support your point that uh, uh, where in the path is the version number, that's semantic information that we don't have, right? That That's, that's not standardized. I mean, with most Correct. APIs I are mean, at think... the same place, but still, that's not a standard, right? That's just... You know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's
2: actually quite strange of like how we, we, we thought about that because the path segment, like we... You have like divisions, like just I guess as humans, as engineers, like we just can't divorce that from our brains. Like the slash in the path really doesn't mean anything, right? Like it it looks like it denotes hierarchy, but it does not, right? This is this is some implied intention that like we have as human beings looking at. The whole entire path could just be a good and it would be just as just as valid. It could really be just anything. And so trying to trying to understand subparts, uh in the con- in the constraints of REST, not a good idea.
1: So 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 so, what what kind of uh, of APIs uh, are you usually working on? Is it all HTTP plus REST, or do you say I don't know? gRPC is the thing, um, or REST it is, but I prefer, as you mentioned, TCP/IP. Is there like a strong preference uh, or a trend you see? Uh,
2: I that is an, that's a great question. <laughs> Um I think we're down to the I honestly think we're down to probably those two buckets like we've basically tried just about everything and I think those are the winners. So you're either doing yeah, HTTP rest or you're doing, you know, gRPC uh, you know, with with protobuf. Um like where does that actually make sense? Uh I you know, I think that if you're trying to do reach um then you know, HTTP with REST makes a lot more sense. You're probably going to have, there's a lot more prescriptive semantics around how HTTP works, what the rules are, what you can actually expect and, and adapt to it. Um, going with gRPC, it's, it's not quite there yet. There are a few things. There are a few uh, higher level protocols that have been there. Um, I don't know if you've ever, if you're not familiar with like Apache Arrow, for example, it does that they do a common arrow is actually like three different things. They have like a file format. They have uh, an API and they actually have a wire protocol. And the wire protocol is a combination of their file format with gRPC, basically. Um, so maybe somebody will have more of that there. Certainly if you're trying to do a binary transport, like I wouldn't do anything other than gRPC. Okay. Just period end.
1: So uh, I would like to quickly uh, go back to, to versioning because uh, there, there's another aspect that I always find very interesting um, because I've had some some issues with that in, in some parts in the past. So uh, since we are uh, adventurous in .NET, um, let's just assume we are exclusively using uh, .NET to write our uh, HTTP REST APIs. And of course, we're using Web API and not, say, Nancy for that. So how do we do versioning there? Because the the story of the versioning package is is a is an is an unsteady one, right? So I think it was updated for version five, and then I think didn't even the, the person running this from, within Microsoft leave, and now it's an open source project. It was resurrected for seven or eight. Well, you're talking to that guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know, I was. What the thing yes, is that? So yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, like, yeah, like, real talk, like, I am, I am the team.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, What a setup, Christian, what a setup.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, um, yeah, what happened in, uh, it was, well, I'm not going to say anything bad, but it was a very, uh, it turned into a real mess uh, when I decided to, uh, when I decided to leave Microsoft, and there was not a very good handoff of when that happened, and I tried—I fell on a lot of grenades. I reached out to a lot of people to try to make it right for the community. It's—it's uh, it's taken quite a while to to right the ship. Um, most of it's all all solved, uh, I think, largely for the better. Um, the biggest challenge in that specific transition is—you um, know—I started it in the open source. Under the, the under the Microsoft, Microsoft brand, yeah, be- being but, a yeah, yeah. being a well, there's a couple reasons for uh, you know f- full disclosure. There was a couple reasons for that. Uh, one, I wanted to be you know do the right thing, right? I-, I was actually doing IP inside and taking it open source, going through the proper channel. But uh, in addition to that, yeah, I-, I probably did have a little bit of an, a minor ulterior motive. Like if it's under the brand, maybe it'll get more attention. Uh, and I, I mean sorry for really interrupting.
1: Do... Yes, but sorry for interrupting there, yeah. But a the the official RESTful API framework of a major web framework needs to have versioning. So I wouldn't I wouldn't take uh or I wouldn't have taken a versioning library, and I mean there were others, right? But I wouldn't have taken one that was not official, right? Because that's something that has to be baked in. Or I mean if it's a Microsoft.star uh, uh a NuGet package a semi-official or however you would like to call this, it needs to be one of those packages, right? Because it's such an integral feature for APIs.
2: Yep, no, definitely. When the when the project first started and it, it finally got some attention, um, I, there were talks that with the ASP.NET team about whether or not it would... So I was never part of the team. Um, there was some talk about they might take it over or somehow it would be integrated. And that just never happened. I... I'm just under the impression they were pretty happy with how I was running it. Um, and that was all fine. Um, but where things then sort of became confusing and, and not clear um, when I left, I, there was nobody else running the project. There's And nobody else stepped up to help out, which meant there was no way for me to actually continue maintaining the Microsoft branding because as not a Microsoft employee, there's just not a way to keep that. So... Um, on the positive side, what that actually meant is uh, it would have been hard to create new packages. Even if I have been successful in keeping the old name, I wouldn't have been able to spin up anything new. And starting in, in six zero, there was a considerable amount of refactoring to break out some more common abstractions between people who were still working on the older, like you know, web API stack versus ASP.NET Core. Uh, and so there were a lot of advantages there. Um, also, be able to now have a client library like, hey, if you need to spin up a HTTP client, how do you how do you make it easy for that guy to ask for the right version and find all that information? So on the positive side, some, a bunch of, you know, great refactoring and, and additional things got to, got to happen uh, by changing the packages. But the biggest problem was really trying to get, get that and get that out there so that people know that it actually happened. Uh, and that was, that was really like the biggest disaster. I had no control over the packages in any way for, close to two years and so there was just no way to really tell people like hey this thing and i i tried to warn people because you know if you just go to nuget once you're already on boarded after so many years you know i think at that time we had you know 100 150 million downloads <laughs> no one's going to notice that like oh yeah by the way um you know the package name changed and you should go you know you should go to this new id no one's going to figure that out um Again, it, and it's a weird and, and
1: unfortunate uh, situation, right? I think even when, when .NET 6 came out, right? So the, the versioning package was still on 5.x. I think that we discussed this on, on GitHub, I, I still remember. And I also was surprised that you were not part of the Web API team, right? Because it sounded so logical to me, right? That it needs to come out of the team, right? Um but I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just happy if something works. So I'm happy that the project is in good hands, right? And I know which project I, I need to take, right? But that's one of the reasons why we're doing the podcast right now, because that's that vital information, and you can't use .NET eight soon, right? And have the the NuGet package for versioning five dot x. That's that's one. Yeah, hard, absolutely. Right? I mean
2: yeah. the the. The, the, the start of it all was, was me actually trying to solve my own problems. Right. Uh, and I, I, I ran it, I kind of ran the project internally for, for close to two years. And so this was probably, oh gosh, probably close to eight, nine years ago. Uh, and when it felt like it was stable enough, that's when I kind of took it, took it to the outside. Um, but yeah, even changing, coming up with a new name, like, what am I going to call it now? Uh, you know, so I, I kind of did a little play on the words, right. It's, you know, it's, you know, ASP version, but also just ASP as as in like the snake. So a little little trickery there, because I'm like, I don't know what else to call it, and still also kind of make it quasi-discoverable for people. So I did say though, that this week, I did finally mark all the old Microsoft packages as deprecated with all the the migration information. So hopefully that's gonna also help help, um, some people do that transition. Because yeah, you're right, there were a lot of people who were moving on to six, seven and beyond that we're still trying to use the old 5X versions. And uh, some people don't realize that the, the target framework that libraries are built for are really have an affinity to the ones that you should actually use. So for example... Mm-hmm. If you if you're running on .NET six, you should be running like the libraries for ASP.NET Core six, which the five O libraries don't technically support. No, it probably works, and for most people it did because otherwise, it'd get tons. Of, oh, you could even use seven, bugs.
1: right? But uh, yeah, it's unfortunate yeah. that it's still possible. It's so confusing if you don't know why, right? Uh, but I think that's, that's a-, a whole different discussion.
2: And, and there are some edge cases, though. I, I, I unfortunately I, I have found some edge cases where if you don't if you don't do that, like things break, like. For example, uh, some of them resulted in the dreaded like missing method exception. I've had that happen before. Uh, or the other one that happened is once they introduced um, uh, uh, default interface implementations, I actually don't know why, but the ASP.NET Core team added a method to an interface. Point, and if you actually happen to call through that interface, it actually threw not supported exception. And there kind of was like not a way to avoid going through that path. I'm like... So if you so basically if you take those older versions and you get pushed forward um bad things could actually happen. So I've always made sure that um I coordinate releases that always re- that always correspond to the the target TFM that that's going to be released. So we're getting close to you know we got about a month left.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and i mean i think wasn't wasn't there even an issue i think dot net 6 came out and uh, we we had the 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 dot net 5 version of the library and then i think if you had if you had two versions in I, I believe the same was it the same controller class or the same controller class file i don't remember uh then the swagger generation didn't work It's really really weird right because of some internal changes but of course, you couldn't, as you just described, not update your implementation to the the changed inner workings of of uh, the new uh, stack. Right. So yeah. So so happy happy to see it back. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Some people were even confused and thought they needed both, and that just really messed things up. <laughs> I saw that happen a few times. So, but yeah, I think mostly now people have kind of largely figured it out. The numbers are still pretty high for for downloads on the older ones. Um, we've only got about a week since the official deprecation. Message has been out there, so hopefully we'll see we'll see an uptick in in the new libraries now.
1: Okay, yeah, I, I mean it's uh, it works great, right? I've I've been using it in several projects uh, with great success, and I mean it's uh, things like versioning. Of course, you can kind of implement them on your own with you know a layman approach, uh, something like that, creative routing or whatever. But then on the other hand, content negotiation, for instance, is hard, right? If you want to do it properly, right? So stand on the shoulders of giants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I
2: mean, yeah, for the most part, it's kind of interesting if you actually want to do it by media-type negotiation. It's surprisingly not too terribly difficult to do. So it's in the world of ASP.NET, for example. So the the matching doesn't actually care about uh, um, media-type parameters. So, you know, when you're versioning, if you add, like, let's say a V or a version, whatever you want to call it, um, that actually has nothing to do with how it maps things. And this was traditionally kind of the painful part of doing uh, f- true custom media types, because then you'd have to register, like, your own media type formatter for every single version that you wanted to do. Uh, and that was pretty painful um, in, in your app config to, to map all those. If you do it as a parameter, you actually don't have to. Which is the default, what API version does by default. You don't actually have to reconfigure anything, um, and so it's just like it comes in and says, "Oh yeah, hey, hey, yeah, I want, I want JSON." There you go,
0: and it and matches. So when's the when's the right time to make new versions? Is it only when the inputs uh, change, or for a given output, or or you know when when should somebody you know make a new version versus just Change the code behind an existing version.
2: Great question. So, I would I think just the blanket rule is any visible change uh, over the wire. You're talking about a new version. So, if you make a change to your contract, um, that's certain. That's that's a fairly obvious one. In any way, you know, adding or subtracting. Um, the the trickier one is probably behavior, right? So, behavioral changes depends on the behavior. Probably should also. Uh, should probably also be version. Now, things like changing standard headers and things like that, in the context of REST, I don't actually think that probably needs a new version, right? If you start emitting extra headers or so forth, as long as they're not custom headers, they're standard headers, that's, I wouldn't call that a change. It's not a change in your API contract. I think that's what some people misunderstand is as the uniform interface constraint, HTTP is the API, Right, so you should think of it as like HTTP is the class, dot get is the method, dot put is the method. The thing that you're actually defining is how is that actually realized, and you're passing you know a message uh, in between, right? Because HTTP is basically message based, right? You request message in, response message out. But you're actually you know, but people want to think of it like they're they're calling you know the the you know do work method on their class. That's not really how an HTTP API works
0: yeah that, that definitely reminds me of soap you know you know you're thinking about it as an object and just a method on that object that you call and process it that way so so what haven't we covered that we should should know about chris
2: probably the you know the swagger open api stuff was was a pretty interesting one <clears throat> um, that uh so there's there's a ton of so api versioning certainly covers a lot of that now i guess probably the the misnomer is uh I added that support not to specifically support open api and swagger it's really about how do you explore your api one of those use cases is api documentation you could also imagine like if you wanted to have an automated test suite and you want to enumerate all the versions you have and sort of like you know kick off you know how, how do you how do you interrogate your whole api and figure out how do I collate all this stuff together um so there's there's a lot of different scenarios that you actually might need to do that with um But yeah, being able to support that with like OpenAPI and and Swagger um, was definitely a a pretty big one. Um, And that's, I haven't seen really any other options actually do that. Pretty much every other implementation that I've seen do it is essentially like hard coding their their versions in there. Or they have, maybe they have it configured somewhere that they enumerate over, but it's essentially not derived from the code. Um, so that's that was an important thing to make that part of, of API versioning. So that would be there. Um, I guess one of the other newer things is adding more support for client side and for policies. So I, I don't think there's been a lot of uh, following of that yet, but starting in 6.0, we added a little bit more about um, how you can advertise your policies. So for example, if you if you want to advertise like, hey, a client talks... Combining these two things, let's say a client comes in and says like, well, I, I asked for API one and, and let's say it's on a path to be deprecated. How does a client ever going to find that out? So first, you have to be able to tell the client to do that. And so for a long time, since the beginning, there's always been headers to tell you these are the versions and you, that are supported and these are the ones that are deprecated. <clears throat> deprecated just means it's still there, but it's, it's on a path to go away. So big, part of the big problem with that was like, how do you know when that's actually going to happen? Uh, and it turns out there was an RFC recently a couple of years ago uh, called uh, it's around sunset, basically the sunset header. And starting in 6.0, there's now a capability to define a sunset policy. And so what the sunset policy will actually tell you is when you ask for a specific version, you will also, if if you're advertising the information as the service, uh, that will also emit sunset policy information to the client. So let's say if you're on 1.0 and there's a policy defined for it, It'll come back with a sunset header. It'll tell you when uh, that API is going to be permanently shut down. Um, in conjunction with that, there's another RFC around web linking. This is one of the one of the possible ways you could do HTLS uh, that I've become a big fan of, which you can advertise link headers very much how you could put like a uh, like an anchor tag in HTML. And the advantage of that is then you can put um, they can have targets sort of like how a style sheet says like, hey, you can have relevance of like what this is actually for. So you can have relevance to say like, actually my sun... So here's when it's going to sunset. And oh, by the way, there's a link here that will tell you to go to this HTML page that will give you our actual stated policy because you can't possibly put that all like in a response. And that might actually say, hey, we support, you know, N-2. The version you asked for is actually going to be sunset in six months whatever whatever that policy is it could also include language right so if you if you have something that's like maybe in different languages and so forth you might support more than just more than just english on the client side of that there's now some client extensions then that says like hey when you create a new HTTP client let's say through a factory you can configure what version you want your um want your factory to create so if you're on version 2 rather than have your code necessarily know that hey i'm always going to ask for i have to append you know Uh, version two to the correct query string, or whatever the location is, you could just set that up in your factory, you just ask for the HTTP client, and it will always amend the version wherever it's supposed to go, based on on the service, and automatically for every request. In a similar fashion, then that can also now hook up to logging with that same information uh, that might be advertised from the service. So now you can imagine combining these things, two things, how do you As a client, how do you know that something should actually happen? So let's say you're on 1.0, 1.0 has now been deprecated by the service. If you're going through this client extension, it will actually detect, oh, hey, I see there was a sunset policy that tells me this is deprecated, and it's going to go away in six months. And it will call into whatever you define for your logging infrastructure. And that might actually then turn into some type of alarm for you to be like, oh, hey, by the way. Uh, this thing's going to go away in six months. You, you, you need to go migrate and and additionally, here's the link that describes the policy for that. In a similar way, how would you how does the client know when a new version is going to be available? Unless you're constantly checking it uh, as uh, uh, as the client, you might not know when that happens. So in a similar way, it also hooks in and says, "Oh yeah, hey, you asked for version one, but by the way, there's no, there's now a version two. One is still supported, but there's a there's a version two that you might want to look at." Uh, so those are a couple of new things that are, I don't think have probably been as well discussed or advertised, uh, for features.
0: That's great. Yeah. i my next question was going to be, how do we gracefully deprecate our, our APIs to so people know, Hey, this is going away. And so you, you answered that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think the only thing I have not, that really is not in the, in the feature set, I, I, it probably will come sometime post eight. I need to look at it some more is, uh, I've always had the basic concept of uh, what we call advertising versions. So you have supported versions, which are versions you implemented. You have deprecated versions, which are ones that you implemented, but they're going to go away. And then there's the idea of advertising a version. So advertising in a version is this advanced concept of saying like, well, hey, I know that this version exists, but it's not here. Like, So imagine that you split your application apart. Like, one application is fully V1, some other applications fully V2. Um, how do you advertise that information? So there's no way, you know, there's no code connection where you can just kind of go interrogate that. So that expressing that metadata has always been possible. Um, now we have things like YARP where you can have sort of the reverse proxy. So I've been looking at some ways of like, is there a way we can take advantage of that? And if you end up going through like a reverse proxy, Advertise that information and actually figure out then, hey, which which endpoint do you need to be redirected to? Um, so that's it's pretty involved, but that's one that I think it'll be pretty pretty interesting and and, and useful for people that are versioning through like gateways or things where they got to have multiple endpoints, like isolated endpoints. So we're gonna
0: have LTS API versions and non LTS and
1: standard support. <laughs> <laughs> Right,
0: I think that was uh, great, and I think oh, uh, it's about time. Yep, we should move ourselves on to picks. So, Christian, why don't you go first? What's yeah, your uh,
1: since I was away, uh, I I have a I have a streaming uh, pick this time uh, for a change, and maybe maybe this has already been a streaming pick uh, before I came on board. Right, so uh, apologies for that. But there was this one, one show which I never wanted to watch. And now I started when while they were in their third season. And I was binge watching all three seasons. And that show, of course, is only murders in the building. I think in the U.S. it runs on Hulu. Um, uh, where I live, uh, it ran on uh, Disney+. Plus. And uh, it's with uh, Steve Martin in, in the lead and Martin Short and i mean they are they're both famous and great but uh, if, if especially if you see them together and i think they're also touring together from time to time and when they are on on late night shows they have this kind of intentional uh, obnoxious vibe right so i was always very reluctant to watch that show and the third uh, uh star of the show uh, is selena gomez which i also um didn't i mean I, I, I don't fancy her a lot, um, but together they have an incredible chemistry because uh, uh, Steve Martin is Steve Martin, Martin Short is Martin Short. Um, they, they have, therefore, of course, different roles, but I mean they they have again this obnoxious vibe. But she keeps them in check. That that's that's really amazing. They have a great um, great chemistry with each other, uh, and I don't want to give away too much. But uh, as the name of the show already suggests, uh, they all live in a building it's a large apartment building in uh, in new york and there are, there are murders uh, at least one per season and uh, they are they are finding out who did it and it's it's really nicely done episodes are relatively short 30 35 minutes so easy to digest very well written funny so it's like a it's not a murder mystery thriller it's like a murder mystery comedy i would say and yeah um i was I was watching it uh, almost uh, back to back, and there will be a season four next year, so um already looking forward to that so that's my pick uh,
0: for this episode Chris do you have something to uh, let our listeners know about Oh, for a pick
2: gosh uh you know there are so many things that are missed now you know, from the from the writer strike i'm like I've been like clamoring for something for something new uh you know, I'm I'm kind of sad that Ahsoka was over. Um I, I absolutely loved it. Um I, I think there were some mixed reactions. I, I was a big fan of all the anime, so I was all caught up with a lot of the backstory. Um but I, I you know what I really, really appreciate what Dave Filoni actually does. I, you know, I'm almost ready to go watch it again because I thought I like, okay, why did they do that? And what did this mean? And then, you know, I've been reading some things going, oh yeah, you know, I, I see the nuance of that. I, I totally missed. I totally missed that. I need to go back and like watch it again and and catch that little detail that maybe I didn't interpret the the way I thought I interpreted it the first time around. Um, so it was real pleasure. But uh, yeah, I, I've been re-watching a lot right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your pick is the uh, the Ahsoka series on Disney Plus.
2: I I, I thought it was great, and if you yeah. and if you hadn't watched all the anime behind, it, yeah, the Clone Wars and and if you go power through it, yeah, the the Clone Wars and the uh, the Rebels anime was i think something extra you know it's it's meant for for kids but there's a lot of adult nuance in there that you can see if you know what you're looking for you see right through it
0: so uh my pick this week is uh we're about 11 days from halloween so last year for halloween i bought this little animated pumpkin that sings and tells jokes and things like that and it has it's it's kind of made out of plastic, but it's kind of a translucent type plastic and it's got a little projector inside of it. So it projects, you know, this face, this animated face on the front of the pumpkin and it's got a speaker and things like that to, you know, talk to the kids and things as as they're coming up, or it's singing a song and the kids can, you know, just be amused by this little talking pumpkin. And I was just the looking at their website and they've now made new versions. They have a bigger version, but then they also have a giant blow-up version that you can put out in the yard. You can do something like that, or they've also got like a cat, or a reindeer, or a, a snowman type of thing. So, uh, yeah, this is a company called MindScope Products, and the one that I bought is called Jabber and Jack. But I'll I'll put the link in the show notes to. All their different products that they have out there, and yeah you know, it's it's pretty cute oh
1: actually so. I, have a, I have a favor to to ask uh, either from you, Sean, or from uh, our listeners um, i was I was in a shop one year ago, also close to Halloween because we are recording this close to Halloween, as Sean mentioned, and there I saw something similar, but it was a, a skull, and it kind of started you know speaking and being illuminated when you were passing by, so there was a motion detector. But it was not to entertain kids, but rather to frighten people young and old. But I, I never found this again. So I didn't buy it last year in the shop. I went to the shop actually last week, um, but they they didn't have it in stock. So if anyone knows what that could have been or has a source for this kind of thing, please, please do let me know. I, I need it for at least for Halloween 2024.
0: Yeah, I've, Halloween is like my favorite holiday because it's so interactive with you know, the, the costumes and haunted houses and things like that. So I always really enjoy Halloween. I've dressed up as the T- Stave Puff Marshmallow Man once. And uh, <laughs> some friends of mine had have a, a really popular haunted house. And so what I did is I stood out by the gate where people come in, like I was just like this yard ornament, you know, like a blow up thing that's in the yard. Let them go by, go through the haunted house, and then on their way back out, then I just step out right in front of them and get them. So because they they thought I was just this inflatable thing, but nope, I'm more than inflatable. All right, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. If our listeners have questions, uh, what's the best way and to get in touch with you?
2: Uh certainly around uh, the project. Yeah, just going out to the to uh, the repo. We'll uh, we can drop that in uh, in the chat. Issues, discussions, they're they're both wide open. Uh, I'd say. Probably seventy-five percent of of everybody who comes to the repos is asking questions. So uh, start a discussion, ask, ask a question, uh, request features. How do you do something? Uh, that's probably been the the best uh, the best thing about building a, building out the community and getting a lot of feedback is you know I don't give you one line responses. People are like, how do I do this? And you get like three paragraphs, and they're like, wow. So, uh, <laughs> you Very know, cool. and I can uh, confirm I that's don't...
1: true, seriously. So um, by by all means, he's, he's he's not lying, not at all.
2: <laughs> so, well, I mean, if, if I want you to use I gotta I got to nudge you somehow, so. <laughs> exactly. Uh,
1: fantastic. Okay. All right. That's you been a great far, uh... show. Uh, thank you so much, yep. Chris, for coming.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: For our listeners who want to reach out and touch with the show, they can get me. I am on X, I'm on Threads, and I'm on Tribal, all under the name .NET Superhero. Thanks everybody and we'll catch you all on the next episode of Adventures in .NET